Good evening, everyone. Our sermon text this evening comes from Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for the gathered body here. We're grateful that you are worthy of our worship and our praise, of our attention and our energy. And I pray that we'll be motivated as we look at this psalm together tonight. I pray that you'll stir us up to love and good works. And I pray that we'll see the model here of David and that we will strive to be like him. So work among us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. This morning, we opened the service with another song. It says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And to sing praises to your name on the time. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. And another song, I'm just picking this up as we continue week after week to, to open our services, typically with the psalms and our call to worship. If you'll listen carefully, you'll hear that David or the psalmist often say that we must worship God with our lips. And it is true, of course, that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's true that worship is meant to be with our whole lives. We are to worship God in a myriad of ways. We're to serve one another. We worship God when we go to work, week to week, whatever work that might be. But it's good and it's proper to also think of worship as speech. Perhaps this could go without saying But often in Scripture, we're told, praise the Lord with your lips, Psalm 63, because of your loving kindness, because it's better than life, my lips shall praise you. This too is a Psalm of David. We are to praise God with our lips. We're to worship Him with our lips. Psalm 8 is just that. 
from beginning to end. It's David just worshiping the Lord with his lips. And this psalm is not telling us to worship him with our lips, but he just does it. C.S. Lewis calls this psalm a short, exquisite lyric. And indeed it is. From beginning to end, David declares God's praise. It's worship through and through. And we can learn some robust theology from this psalm, and we'll get into some of that. It does teach. But as rich as as it is, we must first see that this is worship. This is the praise of the lips, the first phrase. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And this phrase, you'll notice, it's the first line, it's also the last line. These are the bookends of the psalm. And by beginning and ending the psalm this way, David is showing us this whole thing is just about how God is excellent in all the earth. And David is proclaiming it. Note also, David isn't recording someone else's experience. This is his first-hand account. He sees what he sees, and he worships God. So tonight we have four headings, and all of them are commands. And I'm just picking this up from the text itself. The first one is this, worship God for his glorious creation. <coughs> I'm just trying to model ourselves after David here. We're just going to follow in his example. Let's do what he does. Firstly, David worships God because he sees what is most evident in nature. God has, verse 1, set his glory above the heavens. His glory is seen in the earth and even beyond the earth, even above the heavens. And whether your neighbor admits it or not, this is obvious. Romans 1 tells us that God's work of creative power is clearly seen by all men. So all men know that God exists by seeing what David sees here. Some men will suppress this thought, of course. They debase themselves, they dethrone God, but that's rebellion. David's different. He believes that what he sees is the glory of God. In this psalm, in the beginning especially, he allows his eyes to, to take him on a journey. And in a way, this psalm is an invitation to us to go along for the ride. Now we come to verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, David considers the heavens. He contemplates them. He turns these thoughts of nature over and over in his mind. He thinks about them. God's Work of creation was done through the word and the spirit, not by actual physical hands. But David says it's the work of God's fingers. And he's just helping us envision that God and his creative work, it's it's something that we can understand. God is a carpenter. He's an artist. And he places the moon. He places the sun and the stars just where he wants them. And the word here at the end of the verse, ordained, that's a strong word. Some modern artists flick paint haphazardly onto a canvas, and wherever that paint happens to land, there the paint 
stays in God's universe, in God's creation, the celestial bodies, they're ordained to be where they are. Some translations will say the moon and the stars are set in their place, and that's right. But to be ordained means even more than that. Those who are ordained have a ministerial sort of function. They are rulers. When you think of the sun, when you think of the stars, do you think of them as rulers? They're not just there as decorations. They have a role to play in God's created world. They are even a type of ruler. If you read the Genesis account, this is what we pick up. Here's some of that Genesis account. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater lights to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God gave them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night. So the celestial bodies in the sky, they have a role to play. They rule the day and night. They tell the night when it's time to be dark, and they tell the day when it's time to break. So we could say that, in a sense, that God's creation is alive. It's animated. The sun, the moon, the stars, they're not just there for decoration. Even the waters, the fields, the trees, we could say, are animated. Listen to this from Psalm 96. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. So think about that for a moment. The sea speaks. The field is joyful. The trees rejoice because God will come again to judge the earth. And these created things, they're, they're happy about it. Romans 8 speaks of this same reality. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Creation is animated. And so as David looks up at the night sky, he praises God. He has ordained all these things to play their role in his universe. And he's moved to worship. We, too, should be moved to worship as we consider God's creation. Then David moves to worship God for another reason. We'll put this under the heading, Worship God for His Wise Decree. Worship God for His Wise Decree. 
out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. You have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Babies and nursing infants, they don't speak coherently, at least yet. So we're not to take this as if babies are prophesying or, or anything like that. I don't know that anybody, maybe Pentecostals, uh, maybe some of them take that this way. But this is not to be literal, but it's a principle about how God typically works in the world. God routinely uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And this is something David is well acquainted with. Perhaps as he writes this song, perhaps he remembers that time he defeats Goliath. David knows that it was not because of his superior strength or skill that he defeated the giant. David knows his place, and he marvels. Perhaps as he cut off Goliath's head, he marvels that it actually happened. God used the weak of the world to shame the strong. And this verse is picked up in Matthew chapter 21 as Jesus uh, moves into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. The multitudes went before him and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. And the authorities that be, they're angry, they're jealous. It was the weak who were praising Jesus as he comes in to Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes into the temple right after this, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame, they came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And listen to Jesus' response. He quotes this psalm. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. This principle is timeless. God routinely uses the weak to shame the strong. What David wrote then is true now. He saves the lowly, the outcast. He turns and he uses such people, people like you and me, to proclaim his gospel. And in so doing, God's enemies are silenced. When he uses the foolish to proclaim the wisdom of God, the enemies of God are silenced. They're dumbfounded. When Jesus turns fishermen into fishers of men, the enemies of God have nothing to say. Though the enemies of God try to thwart God's plan, God's wisdom prevails. And he is to be praised for his wise decree. Now verse 4, David makes another exclamation. Verse 4, it's in the form of a question, but it's a rhetorical question. What is man 
that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that you visit him. So here David feels the weight of his insignificance. What does man know compared to the mind of God? The wisdom of God is grand and beyond our full comprehension. We are finite, we're limited. We have to take naps when we think too much. God doesn't take naps. And David, he's looked at the size and the scope of all that there is, the moon and the stars, the multitude of plants and animals. What is man in the grand scheme of things? We are like ants on the sidewalk, scattering this way and that. We are utterly small and insignificant. What is man that you were mindful of him? And then notice, David moves. This is most interesting. Take note of this. David feels his insignificance, and then he moves from feeling the weight of this insignificant position. He moves from there to feeling the weight of the significance of being a man. Verse 5. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. God has made you to have glory and honor. And this is yet another reason to give God praise. This is another reason David worships God. So this is our third heading. Worship God for putting all things under your feet. Worship God for putting all things under your feet. Though we are finite, though we are made of dust, God has done something utterly unique with mankind. He has stamped his image on man and woman. Humans alone are image bearers. David's aware of how insignificant he is in the grand scheme of things, but he also gets this point, and he celebrates it. And we should celebrate this fact, too. We have been given such privilege. Mankind is the crown. Mankind is the glory of creation, the land Beneath your feet, the sky above, the waters, these things are given to us that we may live and move and take dominion over the earth. The plants are given to us for food. We take the resources on earth, woods and metals, and we make shelters with them. And we should, for that is indeed what these materials are for. They are for us to glorify God. And this is the immediate point that David is making in Psalm 8. God's creation is lovely, it's full of wonders, and the first man and woman were put here to cultivate it to the glory of God. Think about this. Just as David marvels at the first part of this psalm, he marvels that the moon and the stars are ordained to rule the night. He marvels that mankind is ordained to rule the earth. And I, I don't think that we should downplay this point. We should be thankful that we are the image bearers. A quick comment now on that phrase, made a little lower than the angels. We are not like the angels in that they can peer into the spiritual and physical realms. There's much that we cannot see 
Angels, in this sense, are above us. They are heavenly beings. And though we are not yet heavenly, though we are below angels, in this sense, they are our servants. Angels are ministering spirits to people, to the saints. Again, what a privilege we have. And David is picking up on this. Yes, we are small and insignificant. That's clear. But at the same time, what a wonderful, what a lofty position mankind has been given. You have made him, this is verse 6, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Don't shy away from enthusiasm on this point. You should marvel that you are the crown of creation. No creature has God's image stamped all over it. And David, though he's a man at this point of writing it, he celebrates this. We should too. Though now, um, perhaps at this point of the psalm, Maybe you've picked up, there's, there's a bit of tension. That's the way I think sometimes as I, I read this psalm. It is true that God has put the earth, all the earth's material goods, the plants, the animals. It's true that he's put these things under our feet. But something's not said in this psalm. Though we have dominion in the sense that we've laid out, something has dominion over us, doesn't it? And this fact may linger over the psalm for some of us. Satan is the ruler of this age, and death rules over mankind. Yes, we have great privilege, but no man can escape this rule. Death is that great enemy, and we can't avoid thinking about it. We may prosper and build and subdue the earth, but death lurks. The first Adam was given dominion over the earth. He was entrusted with the most glorious task, but he rebels against God. He thought that this task was not good enough. He believed God was holding something back from him and from his wife. Adam wanted something beyond this glorious task. And this goes back to the point I just made. It is good for us to see this first task as glorious, as wonderful, as a gift. Because that's what Adam did not do. And because of Adam's great sin, death now rules over his descendants. And if we were to stop here in the psalm, we may suppose that this psalm is simply a celebration of the great privilege we have been given in the Genesis account. But this psalm is more than that. This psalm is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. And because of this fact, we can say that this psalm has a lot more to say than just these nine verses. So let's look now at another sense this psalm is used. We'll turn to the New Testament for this. Let's turn first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there with me, if you will. If not, just listen to these few verses I'll read. This, by the way, is the fourth point and the last point for this evening. And that is, 
worship God for putting your enemies under Christ's feet. Worship God for putting your enemies under Christ's feet. 1 Corinthians 15, picking up in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And here's the quote from Psalm 8, for he has put all things under his feet. And of course, in this context, <coughs> The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, he doesn't mean it just that, that Jesus has been given dominion over the fish of the sea and the animals of the land. He means it in the sense that Jesus, by dying on the cross, by rising from the dead, he has triumphed over Satan and over death itself. And it can be said, and it is said in the New Testament several times, that death and Satan himself are under his feet. So where Adam fails, Christ succeeds. Let's look now briefly at Hebrews 2. A similar point is made in Hebrews 2. In Hebrews 2, almost half of this psalm is quoted. Picking up in verse 5, Hebrews 2. He has, put, he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. So who, who has God put the world in subjection to? And then we see the quote, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And set him under the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So Adam had great dominion, he had great privilege, and all mankind who followed after Adam does have this great privilege still. We can marry, we can spread throughout the earth, we can take the goods of the earth, we can take the raw materials, and we can cultivate it. And we have dominion and this wonderful privilege. But death lurks. So in another sense, we don't quite have dominion in its fullest sense. Christ is different. Christ has dominion over it all. All things, going back to Hebrews 2 for a moment, are put in subjection under him. He left nothing 
that is not put under him, including death itself. And Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus did not become a beast. He did not become an angel. He became lower than the angels. In the sense that he became like you and me. He took on flesh. And he obeyed the covenant. Where Adam did not. Christ then is this ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8. And one day he will come again. And the fields will rejoice. And the trees will sing for joy. We can go further in Isaiah creation. We will have full dominion with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And we get glimpses in the book of Isaiah of what this may look like. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fattening together and the little child shall lead them. That's true dominion. I don't want my kids leading a bear around. But in the new heavens, in the new earth, with Christ, there is full dominion given. So this is that fulfillment of the psalm that I speak of. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. In the new heavens and the new earth, we shall indeed not be afraid of the animals, and they shall not be afraid of us. There will be peace, prosperity, and we will have true and full dominion. Let me conclude with an explanation for why I think this is all Relevant. There's much to learn in the Christian life. There's doctrine to study and to master. I'm all for that. There are ethical issues that we need to wrap our minds around. There are false teachings that need to be combated. But we must remember to look to places in Scripture like this psalm. Our aim in life is to love God with all our hearts. This is the most primary task. We are to love God. Though we can do this with our service and in our work week to week, we must not forget this simple truth. We must praise God with our lips. That's the command of David in so many of the Psalms. And here he has given us a wonderful example of what that looks like. And he does so. And then Jesus and the New Testament writers pick up on it to the praise and glory God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this example of David. May we praise him. May we strive to worship him with our words, with our hearts. There are a multitude of reasons for us to worship you, and I pray that in the midst of all of the anxieties of this earthly life, that you will give us the eyes of the Lord, that we will look up and that we will see your glory, especially the glory of the greater Adam, 
who grants us eternal life upon believing in, believing on him. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You can now turn with me on the back